Good morning, everybody. Sure is good to see everyone this morning. I hope you're having a great day so far. And even if you're not, you're in the right place. Amen? We are in the right place. It is good to be together. As Amy said there at the conclusion of the video, we are in the middle of a series called The Great Life. We've been looking at the contrast between the good life that this world uh, tries to offer, so-called the good life, a, a life of accumulating stuff and perhaps also developing some discontent, compared to the great life that Jesus offers, a, a life of acquiring peace and generating generosity. And we're discovering that that is a great life, and it's what makes life great. So as we're now six weeks into the series, this is week seven, we're really given this important subject, the full treatment that it deserves. Let's just take a second and review some of the things we've learned so far. Uh, we started by reminding ourselves that everything we have really belongs to God, that we're stewards of what God has given us. When it comes to our material possessions, our stuff, our money, that we're stewards of what God has chosen to give and invest in us. We also learn that money has tremendous spiritual power, that our material goods have the power to do spiritual good, and that that's really worth remembering when it comes to how we relate to and begin to handle our finances. We also learned that we can rest and trust in God's provision. When it comes to the subject of money and finances, usually that can be followed by words like stress and worry. But instead, we can begin to realize that God is our provider. He never takes his eye off of us, and he takes good care of us. He's good at that, and we can rest and trust in God's provision. We also heard Jesus' warning to guard against all types of greed, recognizing that greed and consumerism uh, can totally worm its way into our souls pretty easily if we're not vigilant about it, and we can just end up wanting more and more and more. And finding ourselves with a lot of discontent instead of perhaps instead cultivating contentment. And then last week we reminded ourselves that all of this can be motivated by God's mission and our love of God's mission. And there is a tremendous amount of good that we can do in this world in meeting people's needs and writing injustices and on and on and on, thanks to our generosity, our thoughtful giving. And all of that takes us to today's uh, subject, which is discovering joy in our giving. It has taken us all this time to reach the powerful passage that we're going to spend time in today. It would be, it would be easy, even expected, to have begun our treatment of this important subject with the words we're about to read. But the joy of giving is best arrived at in the biblical context of trust and stewardship and contentment and mission and all the things that we've talked about so far. So it's in that setting that we now turn to these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to this group of Christians, and here is what he says. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we thank you for this truth that we're going to get to dive into this morning. We thank you for these holy words that you've seen fit to preserve, that we could read them this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd be our teacher. Do what you're so good at. Take these truths, plant them in each of our hearts, so that each of us walk out of here with exactly what you need us to learn, to know, and to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's move through the center sentence of this passage, phrase by phrase, thought by thought, and just let the truth of it land on us. I want to begin with those words, each of you should give. Each of you. There's certain matter-of-factness here that Paul is using. Each of you, he says, should give. Generosity isn't meant to be about the spectacular, but the steady. Uh, Jesus even warns us at one point, right, that when we're giving our gifts, when we're making our offerings, it's not something that we announce with fanfare. We don't point out just how generous we're being. It's something that just happens steadily, not in some sort of of spectacular fashion. It should be sacrificial, yes, but also sacramental, meaning it's a devoted act of worship. That when you and I give our offerings to God, It is a way of declaring God is first place in my life and I delight in honoring him as the giver of all good things in my life. And I want to declare that through my giving. It's an act of worship. And there should be, like we said, a a steadiness, an ordinariness about our lives that we can embrace. That what we've been seeing throughout this series, true greatness is living with and for others with patience and openness, without fanfare or even vexation. Instead, we're, we're steady and patient with each other. And that applies to our generosity as well. We embrace the ordinariness, if that's a good word, of our lives. And just understand that it's everyday faithfulness that matters most. We live with our normal, natural stuff, all that, the dollars and the cents and the things and the possessions. We live with all of that. And we end up doing supernatural and far from normal things with it, thanks to the generosity that Jesus grows in us. This reminds me of a moment in Jesus' ministry. It's recorded in Mark chapter 12. When I think about Paul saying each of us should give, my mind goes to this moment. It says in verse 41 of Mark 12, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple. Every every entrance to the, the temple in Jerusalem had a place where you could give your offerings in worship, much like we do here, here at Outlook even. There's a place for you to drop your offering if that's the way you choose to give. And so Jesus sets down near one of these collection boxes, and he says, and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts, it says. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Everything is a key word here, and we're going to encounter it again near the end of the sermon. Everything she had to live on. What we see here is that the measure of our giving is not its size, but its sacrifice and the heart behind it. Now, I've heard so many of you throughout this series chat with me, and you, you say that you've learned you can't outgive God, right? Have you ever heard that or heard yourself saying it? You can't outgive 
God. And, and it's not unlike Jesus sitting here at the temple. We recognize God is looking for givers. Jesus, even observing, points out who is really giving in this scenario. That God is looking for generous people. That he wants to see generosity growing in my life, in your life. And when he finds such people, he sees people he can trust with his bounty so he can accomplish his purposes. It's the stewardship principle we talked about weeks ago and just mentioned a second ago. Anne Frank, a young lady truly wise beyond her years, once wrote, no one has ever become poor by giving. And that is true. So each of you should give, Paul says. No one's excluded. Even that widow understood because of her devotion to God, she gave an offering as well. Even if it seemed minuscule, it was what she had to live on, and yet she knew where her true source was. Was. Each of you should give, Paul says. Is it an obligation? Is it an opportunity? Can it be both in the best senses of those terms? I think it can. Each of you should give. And Paul goes on to say, we give what we've decided to give in our hearts. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. So the truth is, giving uh, a sensitive issue and, and one that churches can get a pretty bad rap in talking about, and sometimes it, becomes, it, it comes at people laced with pressure, laced with uh, shame, laced with manipulation. But Paul is laying it out here pretty matter-of-factly once again. Giving is a heart issue, not really a money issue in the end. We give what we've decided in our heart to give. I, and it, kind of the implied question is, has your heart decided yet? To give. Because it's what God clearly wants to grow in us, a giving heart. God does not, let's be clear, need my money, but God wants my heart. And if we recall Jesus' words from a few weeks ago, there is a heart treasure connection. Where my treasure is, my heart is also, and vice versa. They go together, and so God knows that where one is, the other will follow. God doesn't need my money, but he certainly wants my heart. And just as much as our word, the words we say, what we do with our wealth reveals our real, true heart before God. It's a bit of a litmus test in that regard. And when I think of this heart treasure connection, I'm reminded Jesus loves the church. We read this in the book of Ephesians and gave himself up for it, for us. And so as I begin to learn what it means to follow Jesus, I begin to love what he loves. And I begin to understand that his church, his body, uh, you and me, the family of God, he gave himself for us. And so then I begin to understand and learn that I now give out of that same love. Give what you've decided in your heart to give. And then just to drive the point home, he adds this phrase, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And you got to love this right here. It's right here that we meet a crucial point in Faith and how our faith has been communicated and shared with people, sometimes poorly. For instance, the idea, do the right and good thing because you should in order to avoid punishment or gain favor. That is what you might call religion. And it's what many people think of when they think of faith in Christ. And for understandable reasons. But 
really reluctantly or under compulsion, as Paul puts it here, is exactly how many people would describe their experience of church or Jesus or the Bible. It's something I uh, deal with reluctantly, sometimes even under some compulsion. And this is one of the saddest misrepresentations of what it means to be a Christian. But here, in this passage, one about giving our money no less, a subject that tends to be laced with reluctance and compulsion, Paul cuts those cords uh, right out the gate and is giving us full permission to approach this subject with freedom. We get to read that even this, even giving our finances, is not a got to, but a get to. It's not about pressure or manipulation. In fact, what is the opposite of reluctance or compulsion? Eagerness and freedom. That's what we're being invited to. The chance to see our stuff, our possessions, our finances with that perspective that God wants to give so that we end up giving them with eagerness and freedom. Let's get some context here and read something that Paul says just a chapter earlier in this letter. We covered this last week. He's talking to these Christians about a collection that he's undertaking for Christians in need in Jerusalem. So he's been going from city to city, from church to church, doing this, collecting uh, funds from Christians for those who are in some serious need in Jerusalem. And he's been preaching and teaching and encouraging and, of course, suffering some persecutions along the way. And so uh, that's what he's been doing, and that's what he's writing to them about, this collection that he's Receiving. And just a chapter earlier, he says this to these Christians. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. So he's talking about a a region that he's been at. Now he's writing to them and he's, he's testifying as to what some of their fellow Christians in this one area of the world have been doing in relation to this collection. They are being tested, he says, by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy which is overflowed in rich generosity. So here we're encountering an equation that only makes sense in light of who Jesus is, because he's talking about Christians who are living in extreme poverty. They're having a really rough time, yet they still have this thing that he refers to as overflowing joy. And so regardless, they are operating in what he says is rich generosity. So clearly there's an ingredient here. Extreme poverty should not equal rich generosity, except for that missing secret and awesome ingredient, overflowing joy. Whereas often in our world, we live with unprecedented affluence, which often ends up creating chronic discontent, and, getting, and then we're suffering from what you might call a giving disorder. We're not really sure what to do with all the stuff we have. And then we realize it doesn't satisfy us. And we get discipled by the world as to what it means to have all this stuff or what we should be doing with it or what our goals uh, should be about it. When we step back and let the scriptures disciple us, we get a different perspective. And we begin to see that that discontent does not need to be connected to that affluence and that there's something, there's a better way to approach the things that God has given me. And I think it's this joy that makes the difference. We're going to read in a second, we read it once, God loves a cheerful giver. That it's this joy in the Lord that my soul is redeemed, that I get to have a relationship with the one who created me and knows me, that there's joy in that that can't be taken away, 
And it's from that joy that true generosity begins to flow. It's a fuel, perhaps, that we're missing when we think of this subject of generosity. What he's describing in these Macedonian churches makes no sense apart from Jesus. He goes on to say, For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. There it is again, right? Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift. Please let us give. We want to be a part. This is what Jesus is growing in them. This generosity that is giving more than it seems that it it can afford because it recognizes that sharing is a privilege and that all of this is freely chosen by us because we are becoming people by the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. There's no other way to explain it. The kind of radical, joyful generosity that's described in the Scriptures for God's people cannot be explained apart from the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Not really. We become people who want to live this way because we recognize it's a great life. We give what we have decided in our heart, our new redeemed, blood-bought, God-sought, now tender with compassion and filled with joy, heart, what we've decided with that heart to give. In other words, our hearts are in it, right? Our hearts are in it. And that's why Paul has no trouble urging them. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. He puts giving right up there with love and knowledge and and the ability to communicate well and, and being earnest in our faith. He says, you're excelling in all these things, but don't forget this one. Don't leave it out. Excel in this grace of giving. You'll be glad that you did. Don't put it in another category. Don't think that how we handle our finances, that's over here. The rest of faith is over here. No, it's an absolute vital part of your day to day life. And it also, Jesus has got things to say about it. He's got things he wants to grow in you in relation to it. So see to it, he says, that you also excel as you're excelling in other things in this grace of giving. And then he takes it a step further and talks about the highest standard of love and giving that there ever has been. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. In other words, remember who you serve, the ultimate giver, the one who gave everything for you. What, oh, what he's done for our sake, amen? Now what we get to do for him and his cause, we're eager to find out what that might be. And we become people eager to do it. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. What a winsome phrase that is, right? I have to admit, if I were writing it, I probably would have written things like uh, God loves a devoted giver, a faithful giver, even a sacrificial giver, a reliable or dedicated giver, but cheerful? Where'd that come from? What's that all about? A cheerful giver has arrived at the conclusion that, like we said earlier, it's all God's anyway, and he can be trusted. And so there's a cheerfulness, there's a joy, there's a lightness to our giving. And here's how I think it works. Let me just kind of describe this virtuous cycle. Whatever I have, whether I think it's a lot or a little, God has given me. And what God gives me, 
is what I need. He knows better than I do what I need. He's got his eye on me. He never takes it off of me. Cares about me more than I could ever measure or realize. So whatever I have is what God has given me, and what God gives me is what he knows I need. So if all that's true, then whatever I give, that won't endanger the supply of what I need, because that comes from God, who is infinitely rich and, and, and eternally caring. And so he knows exactly what I need. So when then when we give, we don't endanger what I need. We're not endangering our supply. We're not endangering uh, the, our ability to sustain ourselves because we trust in God's provision. God is completely able and can be trusted to give me more of what I need. So I give then with open hands and an open heart, recognizing that my source is not me, it's God. And what God's given me, I now get to give to do good in the world, to help people in need, to promote ministry through my church, you name it, all those good things we've talked about in weeks past. What a happy thing it is to rely on God. It's a happy thing. Disciples give up everything and yet somehow gain so much more. That's the secret of the joy of giving. I don't think there's a scene in the scriptures that captures this quite as well as the one that you'll find in Mark chapter 10. So as we transition here to the last part of the sermon, I want to set this scene and, and take us to this story as we wrap up and begin to see how it applies to this idea that you and I are not just to be givers, but cheerful givers. In Mark 10, we read about a rich young man running up to Jesus and asking uh, about eternal life and how to receive it. Jesus mentioned several of the Ten Commandments, the man answers that he's kept those since he was a boy. He seems sincere. Jesus hears his heart. And then we read that Jesus looks at him and loves him and then says, there's still one thing you haven't done. Verse 21, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. He is giving this uh, man an invitation. He didn't give to just everybody. He certainly offered life in God, but this is a disciple invitation. This is the kind of invitation he gave to Peter and James and John and Andrew and on and on. He really sees a lot of potential in this young man, but he knows that there's one thing that he's left out of his lordship, uh, is, is giving everything over to the lordship of God. He says, you're going to need to sell what you have and give to the poor. And so then you can come and follow me. Now, we're encountering a general reality here, and that is total surrender. That when we say yes to Jesus, we're giving him our whole lives. But we're also overhearing a specific application, exactly what it was going to take for him to follow. This was the great physician's prescription for this young man. This man's deep devotion made him a prime candidate for joining Jesus' crew full time. He's pursuing eternal life. He knows how to keep God's word. He asks Jesus about this, but his wealth was holding him back. Not because it was wealth, but because it was something he wouldn't surrender. And wealth, Jesus knows, and we know, can be especially difficult to surrender. Verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He ran up to Jesus with enthusiasm. He trudges away sulking back to his great wealth. He was likely willing to do something bold, even perilous or admirable to others. Give me something. What do I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? Give me something big to do. But this straightforward self-sacrifice, this, this 
this giving of what you have, that wasn't what he saw coming. You mean really just give my money? Generosity, that's what you're asking from me? I was ready to do something more spectacular. Jesus asks him to do something more sacrificial, something steady, something that he knew he needed to do. In other words, Jesus is saying what we read earlier, you can't leave that out. You can't leave that, that off the table. And he knew that for him, this was exactly what needed to happen next. And our guy didn't realize, with Jesus, we always gain far more than we give up. He wanted Jesus, that seems clear, but he wanted something else more. He turned and walked away from Jesus. And that's the rub. It's the rub for all of us. And it's a question worth always asking. What's continuing to be the rival to Jesus in my life? Jesus said that often money will end up being near the top of our list of answers to this question. It just is. And before we dismiss our young guy as foolish, let's ask ourselves what we choose to keep and what we lose in the keeping. Now, I'd like to imagine that perhaps as he walked away, this rich young man turned and looked again at this dusty rabbi and his meager students, and he thought twice about it before heading back to his wealthy, comfortable life, that he could not know what we know, that we'd be reading about his choice today, and that this small band of true believers would become the most epic, influential group of people in human history. If he could have known, maybe he would have turned back. But we do know. So what will we choose? As Jesus said to and then Jesus says to his disciples, as the young man fades into the distance, he turns and says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this would have blown the disciples' minds. The rich are already near the kingdom, aren't they? That's why they're rich. Isn't that some sort of sign of God's favor, their prosperity? Isn't that the fact that God's blessing them? Isn't that the good life? This was a common Jewish perspective, and it's really no less common today. But no. Riches can just as easily be reaped by smart business decisions or exploiting other people or lucky investments. And poverty is certainly no signal of God's displeasure. Jesus seemed to not have a single worldly asset to his name, save the clothes on his back. And Jesus isn't saying that it has to be hard. And he's certainly not saying that God is making it difficult. He's just observing that it is. It's tough to surrender to God when it's so easy to be reliant on ourselves. He's just making the observation. It's been said that for every hundred people who can withstand adversity, there is one who can handle prosperity. So what's going on here? We're encountering a repeated theme in the scriptures, a reality of the spiritual life. Our possessions have a way of possessing us. Our abundance can easily get in the way of the abundant life that Jesus offers in our souls. Now, Peter seems to recognize this is an opportunity, and as, he, as he's prone to do, he speaks up, and he actually ends up tapping into, thanks to Jesus' answer, the very thing we're talking about. How do we become cheerful givers? Peter speaks up, we've left everything to follow you. In other words, we've done what this rich guy wouldn't do, so tell us, Jesus, will it be worth it? And Jesus discloses to his disciples what I really do think is the open secret of cheerful giving you always gain more than you give. Verse 29, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, 
and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, God demands nothing from us, so to speak, that he does not restore in its fullest and most beautiful form. Now, when it comes to this subject so much of what we think we're giving up to God or giving over to God or, or letting go of or selling and releasing, it's just kind of a hollow counterfeit version of what we're about to receive in return. A richness that's lasting, a family, look around, with the deepest bond, internal peace and provision that satisfies far better than a big bank account or merely favorable external circumstances, however fleeting. All of this is the real exchange that takes place. It really ushers us into the rich and great life that God offers. Now, words like this from Jesus to the young man are not the only time we hear this truth from him. He put it more succinctly in Luke chapter 14. Those of you who do not give up everything you have, very similar phrase to what he just said to that young man, cannot be my disciples. In other words, it looks the same for all of us in the end. Take my life, Lord, all of it. It's yours. Whatever it is, everything I have, everything I am, everything I will be, all my dreams, all my ambitions and desires, and yes, all my stuff and all the responsibilities or all the burdens or all the things, it's all yours. Jesus said you give it up to become his disciple. Now he's promised we'll get so much more back, but it, doesn't, it has to start with the giving up. That word's translated in other places to leave something or to even say goodbye to it. So he's saying say goodbye to everything else so you can say hello to me. This is the call of discipleship. Say goodbye to what you have. It's not much and it won't last and receive so much more what Christ has for you as his disciple. It's eternally satisfying. It's truly valuable. Our hands are open to let go because the joy of giving is found in giving up. We're going to uh, take these open hands and grab our communion this morning. If you picked up one of these on your way in, I'd like you to uh, invite you to open that up and let's take the bread in our hands. So we're talking about this subject of generosity. We're learning here that God loves to see us as his children becoming cheerful, happy, joyful givers. People who are of our own free volition, becoming more like him by enjoying generosity. And when we take the bread, we're reminding ourselves that we're following the greatest giver of all. The scriptures tell us that he gave his body on that cross for us. What do we do? We receive and thank him for it. Let's take the bread together. And every week as we carve out this moment, we're becoming receivers, right? I can't help but think that it's practiced receivers that become generous givers that we learn what it means to receive from God. And then as we do, we hold what we receive loosely and generously so that we can easily share it with others. <clears throat> this moment teaches us that. And so let's take the bread, I mean, let's take the cup and remember him and drink together. <clears throat> let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful truth that we've got the chance to soak in this morning. And we do recognize, God, that there's a dynamic here that you don't want us to miss. 
The fact is that when our joy begins to drain in our lives, our generosity is soon to follow. You know that. You recognize that. And the, and the, the goal is not then to just try to, by our own sweat and, and uh, effort, to generate more generosity, but instead, God, to turn to you and, re- and restore the joy of our salvation. To, to begin to understand just how good and sweet and wonderful and, yes, great life is because of you, not because of anything externally or circumstantially, certainly not financially, but instead we find our stability and our satisfaction, our fulfillment, Lord, in you. And when we do, then we begin to tap into that joy that then fuels our generosity. So, Lord, give us that joy again this morning recognizing that whatever happens, there's one thing that never changes, your love for us. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.